this morning. Um, you see, it's a, one of my favourite stories. It's about a lion called Simba. And he was raised to be king by his parents and they loved him. Uh, and at, at the beginning of his life, his father shows him the kingdom that he is to inherit and teaches him all that he'll need to know to rule with wisdom and grace. But then tragedy strikes. Simba's father is killed in a brutal buffalo stampede. Simba, heartbroken and afraid, is deceived by his wicked uncle into believing that he is responsible for his father's death. In shame and disgrace, he runs away into the jungle where he gets caught uh, up in the carefree and bug-eating antics of Timon and Pumba. Meanwhile, back at Pride Rock, Simba's wicked and cruel Uncle Scar has taken hold of the throne and is wreaking havoc. Nala, Simba's childhood friend, searches desperately to find him. And when she does, she begs him to return as the rightful ruler. But he's afraid. What if he's not good enough? What if he isn't worthy enough to be king? What if he's not like the king his father was? But ultimately, the ghostly vision of his father convinces Simba to return. This is it, the moment we've been waiting for. All the build-up for this moment, King Simba is gonna return to Pride Rock. And as he runs, we the audience are ready. We're ready for what King Simba's about to do. He's gonna kick Scar out, he's gonna turf out the hyenas, the zebras are coming back, the koalas are coming back, the hippos, the everything, all the death, the decay, it's gonna be done away with as King Simba, the rightful king, returns to the throne. Peace will be restored. The circle of life will come back into balance. And we're like pumped. Yeah, get some clapping going on at least. Fantastic. I peaked too soon, friends. I have peaked too soon, right at the beginning. You're like, what was that? The thing is, our passage of scripture this morning, John chapter 12, is that moment for a whole bunch of people. It's that moment where it's called in, in cinematography and in, in books and in storytelling, it's called the third act. It's the moment where all the tensions that have been building up get resolved. It's the moment when all the problems that have been happening get fixed. It's the moment where, uh, where the, the love uh, relationships that keep getting, they keep not meeting up, finally they meet up. It's where the, the questions that have been challenging us as an audience get answered. It's the, the reconciliation moment is where the third, it ha all happens in the third act. And uh, this morning, uh, it's like that because um, for the Jewish nation, for the Jewish people, they had these promises all throughout scripture. Someone is coming. Right back at Abraham, uh, Abraham is promised that his descendants, from his descendants, would become someone who would bless the nations. Then you've got Moses and someone who's going to lead them through to the promised land. You've got David, a king. He's great, but there's going to be a king who's greater. And it's all the way through scripture. And the Jewish people, they're just waiting for this moment for this king to come. And this morning we're reading John chapter 12. It's the triumphant entry. And they think this is it. This is the moment. And they've got the palm branches out and they're singing the hosannas and they're welcoming in the king. 
But the problem is, they've got the complete wrong idea about what that king is like, who that king is like, and, and what he's here to do, and how he's going to become king and establish his kingdom. So this morning, we're going to look at three things, three points as we read through the text of John chapter 12. We're going to look at uh, the king that the Jews wanted, the king that the crowd were after, the king they thought they were going to get, the real King Jesus, the actual king, who he really is, how he's actually much better than their expectations. And then thirdly, if we've got time, we're going to look at kingdom living. What does it mean to live under the real king? So that's where we're going today. I'd like to read the text to us. It's John uh, chapter 12. And we're going to read, we're just going to read verses 12 through to 26, uh, which are up here uh, in the ESV version, uh, or you can find it in your Bibles and read along with me. So I'm going to read uh, from verse 12. Give you a second to find it. Oh, let me grab the chicken drumstick. You know, I won't need it because I've only got one more slide. Sorry to disappoint you guys. And uh, I think, Courtney, you'll know when to put that one up. So, uh, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd uh, that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. <coughs> the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he'd done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. Uh, let me just pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, we thank you that you've revealed yourself in scripture through the Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray this morning, as you've already spoke to us through worship and during our time of worship this morning, Lord, we pray would you reveal more of who you are to us, that we would see you clearly this morning as the king, the true king, the real king, the great king, the magnificent, wonderful King Jesus who sits on the throne and illuminates our lives with the light of, of truth and love. 
Lord, we pray, be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Great. So, the king they wanted. The Jewish people, at this point, uh, are singing these praises. A hosanna to Jesus. They've got these palm branches. And there's a lot of symbolism going on in this passage. In John's Gospel, generally, there's a lot of symbolism and there's a lot of references to the Old Testament. And each one of them is poignant. Each one of them is is purposeful and uh, really interesting. Uh, But there's just two um, that I want to draw attention to this morning. And the first one is these palm branches. Why palm branches? It's not just because they're widely available in a Middle Eastern country uh, like Israel. It also had some symbolism. You see, um, the, about 200 years prior to Jesus, 200 years before Jesus, um, Israel was under occupation by a kind of false kingdom called the Seleucians. I can't pronounce it. But a, a, another empire before the Romans occupied Israel and they, they occupied Jerusalem. And they actually uh, went through the temple and put their own gods there. They defiled the holy temple of Jerusalem with their own gods. And uh, obviously this upset and angered the Jews, the Jewish people. And so they rose up. They uh, formed a small army led by uh, a noble family called the Maccabees. And the Maccabees stormed Jerusalem and they actually won. And they were able to cleanse the temple and cast out all these idols and rededicate the the, the temple to to God. This is actually where the festival of Hanukkah comes from. It tells and it celebrates the story. It's called the uh, Feast of Dedication in John's Gospel. Uh, And what they did when Judas Maccabeus came into Jerusalem in in his victory parade is they ripped off the the palm branches and they started to to, to fan him and, and to put them down. And this palm branches became a symbol of national victory of Jewish victory of Judaism taking uh, back control the Jewish people taking back control of their city the holy city of God and the temple so it became a, a huge and important symbol of the Jewish identity so they uh, now 200 years later and Jerusalem's occupied by the Romans all of the known world is occupied by the Romans at this point um, and they're, they're feeling it's not as bad. They're still allowed to worship in the temple the way that they they'd were. But there's these taxes and they're not, allowed to, they're not allowed to execute people the way they wanted to because they've got to go through the Romans. And there's all this stuff that the Romans are you know, squishing down on them. There's hatred bubbling up. And there's, we're, we should be in charge of our country. We need to kick the Romans out. It started again. This nationalistic um, uh, movement... To, to rid Jerusalem and then Israel of Roman forces and be a, a Jewish nation again. And they weren't wrong to think that, uh, that that was promised to them. If you read through the Old Testament, you see that there's this pattern, this theme. I talked about it. Someone is coming. A king is coming. A king who's going to set up a nation. A king that's going to have set up a nation that will never end. A king that all other enemies will bow before. And this is what they're dreaming of. So they get the palm branches. They've seen in Jesus 
uh, a miracle worker. You see, Jesus comes along and he, he says things like no one else has ever said. He does things that no one else has ever done. Remember John chapter 10, the blind man says, we've heard of healing before, but no one's ever restored the sight of a man born blind. That's never happened. And now, days ago, Lazarus has been brought back to dead. This guy, Jesus, has command over death. We need him in charge. We've got to get him on the throne. And we see this in, even in chapter 6. Jesus turns, uh, gets the bread and the fish and he multiplies the loaves and the fish. And everyone, 5,000, 6,000 people are fed. And they're like, whoa, this guy can feed us. We don't need to worry about you know, food. And we, um, you know, in a world, in a society where you basically everyone is in agriculture, everyone's just making enough food to survive. We forget these days with mass production, none of us produce our own food, presumably. Here in this group, maybe some of us make a loaf of bread from time to time. But in that day, if you didn't grow your own food, you didn't eat. So in a culture like that, when you've got someone who can multiply bread and fish, he, he's the guy you want at the top. Uh, and uh, that was the moment where Jesus said, nope, and he hid. Uh, it wasn't his time yet to be paraded in as king. But for some reason, now is the time. Uh, so another clue that this uh, is that these Jewish crowd, that the disciples, the followers, everyone else is coming to get Jesus and bring him in because they wanted a king, a nationalistic Jewish king for Jewish people. Another clue is the hosannas that they sing. Um, hosannas uh, a really interesting word because it's come to be today uh, just a word that we use for praise, uh, like. Oh, you know, Hosanna to the king, we're praising the king. It's a general term for praise. And actually, it was in Jesus's day too. Um, it's part of the only place it's in the Old Testament is in Psalm 118. And if you go to Psalm 118, it just says, uh, save now, uh, king of Israel. It's actually translated into English for us. But here, because it had become to, it, it, it come to be used as a, as a phrase different to its actual meaning. Um, the reason for that was because it was part of a collective uh, collection of psalms that were sung every morning during Passover week, and also uh, the Feast of Booths, Tabernacles, and also the Feast of Dedication, which celebrated the, the, the king who came and restored the temple. So these three big feast days, they sang this prayer, this psalm every morning. And uh, interestingly, when they got to the Hosanna part, they would hold up the palm branches and give them a wiggle. And so those palm branches became, came to be known as the Hosannas. That's what the palm branches got the name as. And so this, all this symbology, all of this um, deeper meaning got assigned to, got put on this word. So when they sing Hosanna, um, it, it's, all, um, it's all about praising and anticipating, hoping for the coming king. And uh, it becomes shorthand, it becomes just the symbol for the Messiah is coming, or here is the Messiah, this word. Uh, as a side note, it actually means save now. It's actually a cry of desperation. And uh, for me personally, uh, there was a time in my life when um, I... Uh, kind of hit rock bottom, I kind of hit, I, I really, um, 
I uh, kind of had my heart was broken. I lost my job. I actually had to move out of my home and move back with my parents all in a short space of time. I've mentioned it before. It was really a very, very low moment in my life. And the, uh, the only prayer that I could choke out through tears, the only word that came to my mind was Hosanna. And I didn't know what it meant. I was really confused, but it was the only thing that I could pray. And I, I just prayed for, a morning, for this morning. This word was the only thing I could repeat. Um, over, over my tears. And so I, later on I calmed down and I, I, I looked it up. I thought, I'd find out what this means. And that's when I discovered it meant save now. And I felt as I was preparing this that for some of us, that might be where we're at. We're at a, God, I just need you to save me. I'm in a dark place. And we heard this morning that the light overcomes darkness. Jesus overcomes <laughs> darkness. So if that's you this morning, or when you find yourself in that place, we all will find ourselves in moments where we feel just under darkness, in darkness. Then an encouragement to you is you can cry out, Hosanna. It can have this other meaning. It can be this desperate, God, I'm, I need you to save me. Save me now from this moment, from this despair, from this heartbrokenness, from this tragedy, from this whatever it is. It can become a cry for us. So, for these, these Jews, this crowd, that's not what it was. It was a general term of praise for a coming king they thought they were getting. The type of king they thought they were getting, however, only fixes short-term problems. He's a king for Jews only, the king they wanted. The king they wanted was going to come and kick the Romans out, set up a Jewish nation, and they were going to go back to living how it used to be, or, I am, or what they thought it used to be. Perhaps they had a, uh, like a golden view of the past, and they thought, okay, if only we could go back to how things used to be. Um, it's a tendency that we have, I think, generally as humans, is to always think that it used to be so much better, if only we could get back to how it was. If we're not careful, we can bring our own ideas of what we would like God to be, to God, just in the same way. We can think, do you know, I would really like, this is the kind of king I would like. And then we just put that onto Jesus. This is the kind of king uh, I, I, I wish I served. And we put that onto God. Uh, but we, we need to be careful this morning that we allow our view, our idea of God to be informed by what God says about himself. Which is where we find in scripture. See, God's revelation of who he is so much more important than our speculation about who he might be. So we need to come to the Bible and allow that to inform us about who the king really is. Because these guys got it so wrong. In fact, it's, it's amazing. This is Sunday, Palm Sunday, and they're singing, Hosanna to the king who comes. Blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. On Friday, they're being screaming, crucify, crucify. They don't have a clue. His disciples, scattered. Some of them are going to deny Jesus. Four days it takes to go from high praise to get this guy on the cross. Who is the real king? See, they had a small vision of God, a really small vision. King over a nation, it's tiny. The real King Jesus comes. Uh, no, more, no, not ready for the next slide. What does he come like? Well, the clues in the text, 
it's all about that donkey. You see, a donkey uh, is not the normal way that the king would arrive. If you think about a donkey, um, small, sturdy, farm animals, they do the job. Uh, but they're not, they're not intimidating, not the way a horse is, not the way a war horse would be. You see, a real king would come in on a horse. If you think, I was thinking about, uh, we watched Braveheart a couple of weeks ago, but it's still, still on my mind. And uh, these medieval battles, the, you know, you've got the archers, you've got the infantrymen, but it's when the cavalry come, that's when you know things are serious. And there's this moment in Braveheart that's hilarious now. Um, but the cavalry are coming, and it's slow motion, and you know, the horses are coming, and then it cuts to the, you know, the, the Scots, the brave Scots who are ready and waiting, and they're standing, and it cuts them back to the cavalry and back to the... And it, it, you see the look of terror, because if you've ever been up close to a horse, uh, they're massive, and they're muscly, they're huge. Where I'm from in Liverpool, uh, the police... Uh, ride around on horses uh, and it's much more effective than police cars or motorbikes because when you see a policeman on a horse it's intimidating, they're terrifying beautiful but powerful um, and you know that image imagine the army, the cavalry charging towards uh, you and you're, you're watching them come towards you for me, I, I would turn and run now put them all on donkeys, and it's not quite the same thing. Uh, I don't know, I feel like I could take a donkey. Um, so, you know, if I had a big spear, a donkey, the person's only going to be a little bit higher than me. It's a different image, isn't it? It's exactly the same here. And uh, donkeys are humble animals. In fact, there would be a symbol, I guess, of peace. Jesus is saying, I'm coming to bring peace. Whereas they're thinking we're going to get a king who's going to make war, who's going to ca- kiss, kick out the enemy, cast out the enemy. Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm coming for a different purpose here. I've got a peace purpose, a peace plan. I'm coming to make peace. Just as an aside, I think it's really interesting that the disciples don't know what Jesus is doing. They don't get it. Uh, John helpfully tells us uh, in verse 16 that his disciples did not understand these things at first. You can almost imagine them being like, "Woo! finally, the day has come. The moment's here. The king is coming. On oh, a donkey? Oh, Jesus, this is embarrassing. Why are you on a donkey? And we could, um, don't know if that's the case, um, but there, sometimes uh, we can think, God, is this really it? Is this your plan for me? Is this, is this meant to be this way for us? Is this how this is going to take place? Sometimes we think God is, uh, we're we're praying for something and it doesn't quite come the way we thought it would come. Um, And actually, we've got to trust that God knows what he's doing because this donkey has a really important purpose, not just as a symbol of peace, but also as a fulfillment of prophecy. You see, the disciples could easily have thought, oh man, he's on a donkey, this is kind of embarrassing, this isn't kind of what we thought it was going to be like, it's not really the powerful image we wanted to present as Jesus comes in, but after the crucifixion, after it all, what do they say? They remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. 
they're reading. I, I don't know if this is the way I can imagine them reading through their Old Testament. They get to Zechariah and they're like, wait, wait, wait. Coming riding on a donkey. This is it. This is what he did. And the faith would blossom up as they realized that Jesus had a plan all along. What looked like a kind of embarrassing donkey at the time is now a fulfillment of scripture. And when they read that scripture, the faith would well up even more as they realized what Jesus is saying by coming in on a donkey. So here's Zechariah chapter 9. I want to read the whole thing. Uh, well, not the whole thing, but at least this point. It says this. Um, the coming king of Zion, it's chapter in my, uh, titled in my Bible. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope, for today I declare that I will restore to you double. This is a king who's bringing about peace. And how? It says, doesn't it, in verse 11 of Zechariah's prophecy, because of the blood of my covenant with you. You see, another interesting thing about this day, um, I'm sure you all knew because we know our our Hebrew calendars, it was the 10th of Nisan. You're like, oh yeah, yeah, what's so special about the 10th of Nisan? Well, the 10th of Nisan uh, was a really important day. It's actually got lots of symbolism. It was the day that um, Joshua went through uh, the River Jordan with the, with the Israelites and they went through into the Promised Land. But it was also the, um, the day that the, the, the Passover lamb in Passover was found that was then used for the blood on the doors. It's the day, same day that the high priest selects then the Passover lamb. In uh, four days' time, they're going to do the big sacrifice with all the lambs. On this day, somewhere in Jerusalem, at this moment, as Jesus is coming in, the priest is out looking for a perfect lamb, a spotless lamb, a lamb that's going to be uh, sacrificed on behalf of the people. And Jesus, coming in on that day, is saying, I'm, I'm that lamb. He presents himself to Jerusalem as a king who comes to make peace. How? by his own blood, by the blood of the Lamb. It reminds us of of what John the Baptist says prophetically, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the coming king who makes peace between man and God. One of the things that's interesting, uh, this uh, passage of scripture is in uh, all four gospels. And in um, one of, I think it's in Luke's gospel, one of the extra things that they sing, the crowds sing, oh great, now there's gonna be peace in heaven. And I love that in uh, the nativity story that they're taking photos of next door, the angels say he comes to bring peace on earth. See, Jesus is full spectrum, peace on earth, peace in heaven, and actually peace between earth and heaven. Because the problem that we have as sinful humans is that we have made an enemy out of God. We turned our back on him. We did things our own way. We said, I don't need you. 
and that caused this enmity, this difficulty, this uh, sin barrier between us and God. And Jesus has come to offer himself as a sacrifice to take away the sin of the world, to make peace between man and God. See, John, uh, John is uh, weaving together this story to make plain that the kingship of Jesus is more than just a local, nationalistic, Jewish king for Jewish people. In fact, Jesus is the king of the world. If you look down to verse 19, I want to go back to the other slide. Uh, in verse 19, uh, the Pharisees are talking to each other. They've already made up their minds to kill Jesus, but they're like, well, we need to hurry up because, look, you see, you're gaining nothing. Even the, the whole world has gone after him. And they're exaggerating, sure, but John wants us to know that this is more than just an exaggeration. It's almost a prophetic word, uh, like uh, the, the high priest who says um, those words about Jesus coming uh, for the, and dying for the people. Because look at the next portion. Just after they say, the whole world has gone after him, some Greeks seek Jesus. John puts that in there so that we know, yup, the whole world is going after Jesus. Um, see, it's an interesting passage because they ask to meet him and Jesus doesn't meet them. We, we don't know if he does, but it doesn't seem to say in the passage that he does meet them at all. Um, instead, when Philip and Andrew come to Jesus to speak to him, he says something completely different. He says, now my hour has come. Basically, what he's saying is that these Greeks, they want to see me. And of course they do. I, I, you know, I've done all these amazing things. There's this stir now, this crowd of people praising. Um, but uh, if they really want to see me, uh, there's something I've got to do first. There's actually some more important way. I'm, I'm going to show them myself, but I'm going to do it in a way that they're not expecting. We could meet face to face, sure, but that's not going to be good enough for them. It's not going to be what they need. Um, what Jesus is saying is, um, I need to die first. What Jesus says uh, is, uh, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground, uh, falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I've got, he's got a mission. He's got a plan. He's the king uh, who's going to come and die for the whole world. So who's the real king? He's the king of peace who makes peace between man and God through the blood of his cross. And he isn't just a king for Jews, but for the whole world. What does it then mean? My final point, I'll be brief, for us to live under Jesus' kingship. What is kingdom living? Well, verse 24, uh, Jesus is talking about his death, but he goes on to speak uh, more generally about his followers. What does it look like to follow Jesus? And I read it to us um, in verse uh, 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. For eternal life. 
If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. See, as Christians, we're saved by putting our trust in Jesus and in his death on the cross on our behalf. The Bible then tells us that when we put our faith, put our trust in Jesus, on his sacrifice, that we become a new creation. Jesus says we're born again. Paul says we're a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. But what is the new? What does kingdom living look like? Well, it's no, we're called Christians, originally was a a, a title, a term of of jest, it was a mockery, like Christ, like little Christ's was the word, and Christians came to take that on as a badge of honour. Yes, we want to be little Christ's, we want to be just like Jesus. So Jesus is saying, if you want to be like me, this is what it's going to look like. Uh, We must hate our life in this world. We follow Jesus. Where's Jesus going? To the cross. That's where he's heading. And we must serve him. This kind of sounds a little bit difficult, and you're like, whoa. Okay. Um, But uh, there's, there's also three real glories, three promises in this text as well for us to take hold of. But what does it mean, first of all, um, for us to follow Jesus? What does it mean for us to uh, serve him? Well, Paul spoke about it uh, in 1 Corinthians. uh, Towards the end of the the letter, he says, I die every day. I think what he's talking about in the context is that every day something is tugging at him that he has to say no to, something that would have maybe made his life a little bit easier. Maybe made his life a little bit softer, maybe made his life a little bit more convenient, but wouldn't have honoured Christ, wouldn't have honoured his king, wouldn't have given the glory to Jesus, wouldn't have proclaimed Jesus as king over his life. And Paul says, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have that in my life then. I'm going to cut it out. I'm going to kill that bit of me that is going to, that, that is seeking after this security and this comfort and these things elsewhere, anywhere other than you, God. I want to find my security, my comfort, my, my, uh, my whole life in you. You are the king of my life, and nothing else will do. Nothing else will satisfy. And when something else comes in, it's like, I, I can satisfy you. It's like, no, I'm going to kill that. I'm going to get rid of that. You see, sin creeps in and gives us warped values, and we start living for something or putting our hopes into something, and soon we can remake our understanding of God into the type of God who we want him to be. The kind of God who lets us live the way we would like to live. Instead of the kind of God who says, I've got better things for you. The kind of God who says, oh, I've got something more than that. That is, okay, I see how that's, you know, it's going to last for now. You want a king that's going to come and kick out the Romans? Great. But after that, what are you going to do? No, no, no. I've got something better for you. I've got an eternal kingdom. I've got, uh, I've got eternal riches for you. I've got eternal joys. I'm going to make things not just right here. I'm going to make things right between you and me. I'm going to bring you back into my family. So what do we see here in these verses that Jesus says, these difficult things that we've got to die, we've got to hate our life in this world? Well, he says we'll keep it for eternal life. 
He says it's about having an eternal perspective. And just in case you think that I'm uh, kind of wanting us to be like, um, like anti-fun, anti-pleasure, anti-enjoying life, that's absolutely not it. What we're doing is saying, I, I want to live life to the full, but I want to live eternal life to the full. I've got a heavenly perspective. You know, I really struggle reading books, but books, uh, because it takes so long. But I know that when I do, I get much more joy out of reading a book than watching a film. It's just that you might not feel that way, but I think that's generally true, is that there's greater richness. You can get deeper into the characters. You can get deeper into the plot. You get more carried away with the story. You want to go back to, uh, I want to go back to Middle Earth when I read the books. The films are really good too, but the books are better. And I think what God is doing, what Jesus is saying here, much more than that analogy, is have an eternal perspective. Have an eternal reality. We heard that this morning uh, in, in our time of worship, that we're living for something uh, greater. We're living for something more. I think some of us need to hear this. I think all of us need to hear this every day of our lives, but sometimes more than others. There's a difficulty in following Jesus. But Jesus says, if you uh, follow me, you need to go where I go. But he says, if you go where I go, I'll be there with you. Jesus says uh, that we need to serve. We want to serve Jesus, serve him with our time, serve him with our energy, serve him with our resources. It's all his anyway. He says, if you serve me, God will honor you. That's a promise right there. The Father will honour anyone who serves me. Jesus, uh, I, I was thinking about this, I was thinking about how often um, the world tells us we need all these things to be complete. You know, with Christmas coming up, there's adverts everywhere, isn't there? You know, oh, if you just had this, life would be better. Um, it would just be so much more convenient for us. More money, more luxury items, uh, you know, it sells us everything. The Christmas films sell us family or relationships, romance. These things, if we had those, I'd be truly happy. Jesus is the most complete, happy human being who walked the planet. And he never settled down with a wife, two kids, a Volvo and a dog. Challenge to myself. So to finish, pardon? Just a dog to get. It's just a dog. Just got the dog left. And I'll be done. I'll be complete. No. So to finish, King Jesus, the real king, rewires our perspectives on life. And, and just to say, it, this isn't a doom and gloom, you need to pull your socks up. He does it. It's the Holy Spirit that comes into our life that awakens our heart and brings new life back to us is the same Holy Spirit that lives in us to empower us to live a life for him. So what we can do this morning is worship. Worship truly the King of Kings who came not to set up a kingdom that would last for 40 years, not to bring a little group of people, a little small cliquey group in the Middle East back to their former glory, but was to welcome in all nations, every tribe, every tongue, to worship the King of Kings who comes in peace, who comes to make peace, who comes to live a life of servant-hearted love. Jesus came to die for us and to take our place. And he doesn't do things the way we expect him to, but his ways are always right. 
and maybe one day you'll look back like the disciples did and realise what that donkey was for. So, Jesus came to serve and save the lost, and as his royal subjects, we get to do the same. Jesus is an eternal king, so we want to live, we get to live lives with eternity in mind. And he's a king of peace, so we get to be peace bringers ourselves. Because he first loved us, we get to live lives of generous love. I pray for us, and then we'll finish. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning, Lord, that you came to smash expectations of what a king should be. Lord, I thank you that you came to open our eyes to the glories that you uh, would show us. Lord, I thank you that you counted it glorious to go to the cross. Lord, what would be deeply shameful to everyone, you said that hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Lord, I pray when we look at the life you've given us and see that it is for your glory. Lord, when we look for opportunities to glorify you with our lives. Lord, would we look for opportunities to praise you in a way that lasts longer than four days. Lord, would we praise you with our whole lives. Lord, and would Hosanna forever be on our lips as we look to the God who saves us, worthy of all our praises. In Jesus' name, amen.